What's your secret? Okay, so when we were younger, we weren't really allowed to have too many sweets only because my brother would consume so much sugar. Sometimes he would just act like a gremlin. So my mom was just totally against us having sugar. So we would just raid the freezer and popsicles and eat sugar packets when no one was looking. So my mom had hidden quite a few of like ice cream sandwiches and Nutty Buddies towards the back of the freezer. My brother and I discovered it all. And we ate it and blamed it on my dad. And it was convenient because my dad likes sweets too and would blame it on us. So there'd be a lot of scapegoats in the family. So my mom decided to eliminate that and put a lock with a chain link around the freezer so we couldn't open the freezer anymore. Only my dad and my mom had a key. So after a little bit of thinking, I thought, okay, you know what we'll do is we'll just take a hacksaw and we'll start cutting the chain link and then we can slip the chain link around the back of the refrigerator and it'll look like my dad did it. So my dad's just getting yelled at like, hey, how come all the ice cream sandwiches are taking all the ice cream's gone? And my dad's like, what? No, I know I didn't do that. And my brother and I are giggling. So I don't know, maybe when they moved their house and a couple houses ago, they, they saw the chain link, but I'm not so sure they did. And I, to this day, my dad still doesn't know that uh, we took all the ice cream and he got the blame for it for all those years. For the last 20 something years, 25 years or so, I've been trying to forget this. Today, Thomas joins us from Portland, Oregon, with a secret that's had a lasting impact on him. This obviously was not one of my better moments. In fact, it was probably my worst moment. And he'll tell us about that moment and what it led to. I was like a rat in a trap. I, I, couldn't, I couldn't back up and change course. Because what he did was the highest sin of his profession. And, uh... It was, it was like standing at the edge of a cliff and, and having to, you know, not have anywhere to go. How many people know your secret today? Probably one person that I'm sure knows, and then maybe my wife knows or not. I'm not really sure, honestly. Interesting. Hi, my name is Thomas, and my secret is, when I was a graduate student, I committed scientific misconduct by falsifying data. It's actually part of the public record if you Googled it. This is The Secret Room, a podcast about the stories no one ever tells. I'm Ben Ham. Hi, Thomas. Welcome to The Secret Room. Thanks, Ben. You're welcome. I'm really happy to have you here. Sounds like you've got a very interesting story to share with us. I do, I think. Can you tell me what your student life was like before all this happened? Well... My dad was my hero, and he always wanted to be a medical doctor, but instead he ended up being actually a rocket scientist. And so when I was very young, maybe six or seven, he suggested that I be a medical doctor when I grew up. Since I idolized my dad, I thought, well, hey, that's a great idea. So that's what I did. So from then on, my identity was, hey, this is the kid that's going to be a doctor when he grows up. So I went through school, double majored in science, and then when I graduated from college, entered into a MD-PhD program. Medical school was much, much different from college. So I found medical school very difficult, but I, I worked my way through it. In fact, my first test in medical school, I made a low C on. That was the first C I'd ever made in my entire life. 
that was a very eye-opening experience. Yeah, I bet. So the the transition to medical school was was a difficult one. Yes, it was. It was very eye-opening. And it really made me concerned because at parties and things like that, my dad would always say, hey, this is my son. He's going to be a doctor. And everybody always thought that was awesome. Did, did your father know you were pulling C's? No, I didn't. I didn't share that part. The other, the other scary thing was is that since I was MD-PhD, I had to maintain a B average. So instantly I realized, oh, crud, I may not be able to maintain the average, and then I'll lose my scholarships, and then what would I do? By the time I took the first test, I realized that this was not going to be easy. I had to come up with a new strategy. I guess the strategy was study even harder. Sounds like a good strategy. Yeah. Well, it worked. I, I was able to maintain my B average. What did you find? I mean, I'm sure it's hard, but for you personally, what you know, what what was it that made it hard for you? That's a great question, Ben, and I'm not sure what the answer is. I, it, it's very tedious. It's it's measuring things in in very very small amounts. Did you enjoy it? I enjoyed trying to figure out ways to answer the questions. Um, once I started on my PhD project, things went really well. I was getting data that was answering questions and pushing the general body of knowledge further. But at least that's what I thought. There came a time when it seemed like even my research was a house of cards because after about 18 months, the data stopped making any sense and stopped being repeatable. Uh-oh. Yes, uh-oh. <laughs> what, what did you attribute that to? I mean, why, why was that happening? I'm not sure. If, if I'd known that answer, I would have, I, I, I don't know, I would have been in a much better position. Looking back at it now, do you think it was an error in your methodology, or was your process been corrupted in some way? Or, or do you just have no idea? The technology I was using at the time was so cutting edge that I don't think that I, or anybody else for that matter, had a really good feel for what it could do and what it couldn't do. And I think that I was probably asking it to do something that it couldn't do. So at this point, you're probably starting to feel like this is a house of cards and I don't know what I'm going to do. Absolutely. Mm. My thought was, is, well, it's not working. And there was a lot of pressure. And late on a Thursday night, I, 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 I made it work. Th this obviously was not one of my better moments. In fact, it was probably my worst moment. What would the consequences have been if the research had failed, would you have failed out of the program? It's hard to say. There must have been a moment when it just clicked in you. You just decided, I'm going to take the left road at this fork and not the right one. You know, you just decided, okay, I'm going to fake it. You're absolutely right. There was. How did that feel at that moment? Was it a relief or, or were you filled with trepidation? I remember having that thought. I remember being in the lab late one night, right around this time. I did have a little comfort, I think, because, okay, I see a way through this, and I, I, can, I can make this work. And perversely, I felt relieved 
in a way that if I'm going to be fabricating stuff, then I can fabricate it any way I want. Again, the very perverted thinking there. But you're right. There was a moment when there was a switch flipped, and I thought, okay, if we're going to do this, this is how it starts. So how did you make it work? What I ended up doing was creating a slide that showed particular experiment that was blank. What that was showing was negative results because it was a lot easier to show negative results than it was to show positive results. Hmm. I thought, well, I'm going to get grilled in front of the entire lab for not having anything. So I could possibly create something and thereby get me through till the next time. The problem is that Friday when I showed that, there was some critique of it, and I could tell that not everybody bought it or was convinced by it. Interesting. Yeah. Without getting too technical, I guess, what was it about your findings, you know, quote unquote, yeah. <laughs> that people could sniff out as not quite right? You know, honestly, I, I don't remember. I went back and, and read, you know, as I mentioned, you, you can Google it if you know the right stuff. Mm -hmm. I tried. I couldn't find you. <laughs> okay. Well, good. Several years ago, if you knew the right things and, and Googled the right things, it was on the fourth page of the Google search. Honestly, I'm not sure what piqued the suspicion, but it was piqued and acted upon. My house of cards, that, that, that was the breeze that, that came and blew my house of cards down. So they figured out that there's something wrong with your data. Who came to you about it? How did you find out that they knew? It turns out that Friday was the Friday before that Saturday morning. I was flying out to attend the annual convention of the field of study that I was in to present some data I'd already collected. Real data? Yes. Okay. Yes. One of the more benign members of uh, my committee came to me and confronted me with it. One secret that most of us hide is that we're not all that great at taking care of our money. What if there were a show where they made the topic really fun and you could learn the basics without feeling like you're in a high school economics class. Let me recommend a podcast. It's called Stacking Benjamins. It's light and it's a great gateway to the world of better money habits. This show is the real deal. Otherwise, they wouldn't be able to attract top people in the financial world to be guests like Gene Chatsky from The Today Show, Jill Schlesinger from CBS This Morning, and nine times New York best-selling author David Bach. He wrote The Automatic Millionaire. They also talked to folks like Disney Imagineers, artists, art forgers, a guy who went from monk to money manager, and even the man who broke the cannonball run record driving illegally from New York to L.A. faster than anyone. It is a fun listen. It's presented in quick segments with a lot of energy. There's headlines, the top guest, listener letters, and trivia. And it all comes to you from Joe's Mom's Basement in Detroit, Michigan. Shows appear Mondays, Wednesdays, and Fridays, so you'll have lots of fun and learn a lot about money in between episodes of The Secret Room. This show 
is a great find. Subscribe to Stacking Benjamins like I do in your podcast player right now. Learn about your money with Stacking Benjamins. As soon as he started telling me what they had found, I, I, I just capitulated. I mean, I, I realized uh, th- there was no saving it. I, 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 was, I was done. What a moment. And they, they didn't approach you as though, hey, Thomas, did you make a mistake here? They said, we know you've done this. Yes. Oh, my gosh. I mean, your heart must have just fallen to the floor. Yeah. And and the thing about it is, is here I am trapped in this resort 2,000 miles from home with these guys for an entire weekend. Talk about being uncomfortable. Oh, my God. Because of the concern, my paper was withdrawn from the competition. And my paper was in the running. It, it was already selected for top three. The, 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 the question wasn't whether or not my paper would win anything. It was, would I win first, second, or third? So have you have you ever thought it was kind of fortuitous, though, that your paper was withdrawn? Because wouldn't it have been much worse if the lie had been discovered after you had won? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, without a doubt. Yeah. Did that occur to you? At the time, I was so trying to uh, keep a very low profile. Yeah, yeah. The immediate consequences were were terrible. Right. What was facing you? Right. I, I knew I was nailed. And so when we got back home, we got into the airport late, and I was trying to get my bags from the baggage claim and, and get out of there quickly before anybody approached me. But I was not quick enough. My major professor approached me and said, you know, please come to the office in the morning, bring your notebooks, and uh, we need to talk. Oh, my God. And, of course, that was not something I was interested in doing. Did you get much sleep that night? No, I, didn't, I, don't, I don't recall sleeping at all. The next morning, I went in late. I guess at that point, I felt better because I had decided that I would, <laughs> naively, I guess, take the bull by the horns, and, and instead of being fired, I would quit, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Good strategy. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's like It's like pulling a ripcord when you're about 50 feet from the ground. It, it might right. make you feel better briefly, but uh, I'm not sure how <laughs> oh, effective my. it was. Right. I thought... I'll drop out of the MD-PhD program, and I'll return to medical school. You know, my return to medical school was tenuous. For the next two months, I had to wait while the medical school decided whether or not they would take me back. Wow. There were lots of certified letters and stuff like that. I had to sit in front of several committees and explain what had happened answer questions. There were at least two different committees I sat in front of and answered questions, or maybe three, before I was basically given a provisional readmittance back to medical school. Did they ask you to make good on any of that money? Did they want any of the money back? No. You know, I I kept expecting that to happen because MD-PhD programs typically give a stipend. If you're in an MD-PhD program, you're getting paid not much, but you're getting paid to go to medical school and graduate school. You had basically defrauded the program. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. If, if you put it that way. Right. Sorry. Don't mean to be harsh. No, no. I, I, I deserve <laughs> yeah. it. But you know, now that you mentioned it, I remember 
being quite surprised by that. So what was the basis for allowing you to continue? It seems to me that, you know, this is the, the cardinal sin of research. You know, you just don't fake data. That's just the worst thing. Ben, your guess is as good as mine. You know, while I was sitting in front of those committees or tribunals or whatever being asked questions, at that time I thought, well, I have absolutely nothing to lose. I basically answered every question as fully and honestly as I possibly could. And I, I think that that is what caused them to let me go back to medical school. My guess is they, as you said, appreciated your honesty. They saw contrition and they probably saw that you had talent as well and figured on balance it would be better for the medical community to allow you to go forward. And they probably had a very vigorous debate behind the scenes, I'm sure, but probably ended up deciding that the medical community would be better off with you in it than without you. That may absolutely be the case. One other thing, though, that came out of this is that part of the deal of being readmitted to medical school was that I would go through counseling that the medical school would provide. And of course, being expelled meant that I lost my funding and that sort of thing. So here I am. I've got 10 months or so before I can get back into school and I've lost my income. So I went and and got a job. I'm a car guy. I grew up working on cars and stuff. And so I, I basically just went out and started working at a local auto repair shop. I didn't tell them why I'd left graduate school and, and was going to go back to medical school. I just simply said, well, I was a PhD student and my project went down the crapper. And so here I am. I've got to sit out 10 months. So I need a job. And everybody thought it was great. I did really well at that job. But the thing is, is that every Tuesday morning or something like that at nine o'clock or something, I had to go down to this, have counseling. I, I don't remember what I told my supervisor or boss at the time, but he was very happy to let me go and go do what you got to do for an hour so you can get back into medical school. You know, and everybody was like, golly, you're a medical student. You're doing here. What, what are you doing here? And so, <laughs> so they were, they were very encouraging to, you know, whatever you got to do, you know, you go do it because uh -huh. after 10 months, we want you to get back in medical school and not be working around here. So. Oh, that really warms my heart. And you know, after I'd been working there for about a month, the owner of the shop, we're walking out together and he's locking up and he said, you know, you've come to work here and the first day you came to work and everybody said, oh, there's some medical student working here. They said, you won't, you won't last. He said, but I've been amazed. You've outworked all of those guys and they're all having to work harder just to keep up with you. So <laughs> I'm really glad to have you here. And I was like, wow, I really appreciate that. That, that made my day. And you have a fallback career in case, uh, you know, you ran into any other stumbling blocks with your medical career. <laughs> yeah. I was second to the last in my medical school class, but you know what they call the second to the last guy who graduates in his medical school class? I'm afraid to ask. Doctor. <laughs> okay. And so when I when I graduated, I went and did a, a residency. And again, just like the first two years of medical school and, and graduate school, it was a struggle. It truly was a struggle. Residency is bad enough when you're really, really smart and you have all that stuff memorized and, and you can recognize Patterson's disease from just a zit on somebody's elbow or something. Uh, unfortunately, that that's the other part of the, the secret. When I was almost done, I got I got just about done, and my luck finally ran out. I simply could not pass the licensing exam. Oh. I dropped out of the residency about three months short of graduation simply because I, I could not pass the licensing exam. So hold on, this is stunning. You you went you went through all of this, all these years of study, 
facing all this adversity, digging a hole, climbing out of it, and then you you couldn't get through the last test. Right. Right. Wow. I, I played it out as far as I could go, but then eventually I dropped out of that. I was lucky in that I worked a lot during residency and was able to save a lot of money. You saved money in medical school. Yeah. <laughs> That's a long <laughs> That's story, but yes. Okay. Wow. Yeah, I'm a car guy. Okay. Okay. And so I had a buddy who happened to be a writer and a traveling comedian who was free during the days while I was finishing up my last years of medical school. I was in school all the time, but I knew a lot about a certain kind of car. He was into these kinds of cars, too. So he would go out and he would find these cars for sale for a couple of $300, $500 maybe. Between the two of us, we bought and sold cars. We basically flipped cars for the two years, my last two years in medical school. Wow. Yeah. I, you know, because, again, I'm a car guy. Car stuff comes easily to me, unlike medicine and graduate <laughs> school stuff, unfortunately. And so... He would go out and buy these cars during the day while I would be in the hospital. And uh, on the weekends or when I had time, we would fix them up because I'd owned a bunch of these kinds of cars. And so I'd accumulate a lot of parts and, and I knew where all the junkyards were. And so between the two of us, in the two years, we bought and sold well over 30 cars and hmm. made money doing that. So uh, when I graduated from medical school, when I stumbled right. across the finish line, finally, I had over 30 grand sitting in the bank. Wow. Yeah. I know. I think when most people leave medical school, they're in the hole and they're paying that off for for decades. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And that's true. And you know what the difference is? Hmm. Those people are doctors now and I'm not. <laughs> right. When I finally hit the end of the road and left medicine for good, I was financially not in too bad shape. And so... Uh, that that allowed me to do that. And when I finally did leave medicine, my you know, my my thought was is that well, I'll take six months off and I'll I'll really study hard for these boards and I'll um, go take them and and then go back and finish up. And uh, that that thought lasted for about six months. I just you know, once I didn't have a day job, so to speak. I just I simply did not want to pick up a neurology book or a, or a pathology book or a, or any kind of medical text. I, I could sit and read it for five minutes and I'd be out of my head. And so I basically went and worked for my dad. Hmm. And so did your father know about all of this, that you had falsified the data and were being called in front of panels to explain yourself and then having to revert back to medical school? Okay, so that, that's another interesting aspect. During the counseling, this came up, and uh, my counselor thought that it would be a good idea for me to come clean to my parents. And strangely enough, she thought it would be proper to come clean to my in-laws. Hmm. Yeah. <laughs> so you didn't confess to them? Well, hmm. as, as part of the, the deal, my counselor, you know, obviously wanted me to come clean. So I don't know if it was her idea or my idea, but that I would write them letters. And so I know I wrote my parents a letter wow. and explained all this. I know my father got it. You never talked about it. The next time I saw him after that was probably Christmas or Thanksgiving. And we may have had a word or two about it, but... I think he was he was ashamed for me. Hmm. Maybe he didn't want to talk about it because it bothered him. Maybe he didn't want to talk about it because it, he knew it bothered me. He acknowledged at one point that he knew 
And then that was that, and we never talked about it. And he's since passed away, so that's why I said, I only know of one person for sure that knows this, and that would be my mother. She, in lots of ways, like my wife, she doesn't ask a whole lot of questions, and she's very supportive and everything, so she's probably done a better job of forgetting it than I have, actually, <laughs> uh, thankfully. So... It seems, I mean, this was 21 years ago. Yes. And Thomas, it sounds, you know, like over the years you've, you know, you've put this in a box and shut it away a bit, but it also sounds to me like it's weighing on you or rears its ugly head every once in a while. Yeah. Why, why does this weigh on you so acutely all these years later? It was a long time ago. Well, again, it gets back to that. I was supposed to be a doctor. Yeah. For all intents and purposes, I did. I graduated from medical school. Mm -hmm. And I even did 99% of a residency. Everybody that knows me, you know, they just assume that, that everything was fine. And the guys I work with call me Doc. And so every time I hear that, I'm, I'm flattered by that. But I'm reminded this, like, well, hmm. sort of not really. Yeah, kind of a painful reminder, I bet. It, it is. It, mm -hmm. I mean, it's, it's uh, painful, you know flattery yeah and so what's what is your job being only as specific as you want to be but what is your job today i'm a test engineer hmm. and so that's really where your heart is you found the job that you want that makes you happy yes i enjoy the job i deal with lots of data and i have plenty opportunity to manipulate data. <laughs> and I bet you don't, don't change one decibel point. <laughs> you know, it's very tempting. You know, coming from the medical field, data is written in black ink. The vast majority of the data that I deal with is, is believe it or not, written in pencil. Uh-oh. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and uh, I do not have any pencils or any erasers in my desk. And I'm very aware of when I see data that mm -hmm. falls outside of the norm and means I have to do some sort of investigation to figure out what's going on with that, that temptation to find an eraser and change it. it sometimes it's strong. Uh, you know, I was never not a nice person, I hope, I think, but uh, I didn't always have the most integrity. And part of the learning experience has been to, to gain some of that. And you know, it's kind of like a reformed thief. A reformed thief may not be stealing things, but they see all the weaknesses. And by the same token, I see weaknesses in people of authority that I'm around, and I see desire to change things in that sort of way. Maybe they think that they're being pretty uh, inconspicuous about it, but I guess what they don't realize is is that I've essentially served time for that. So. I see it much better than most people can see it. Well, Thomas, maybe the one thing that you learned in medical school that was the most important, put aside all of the stuff you learned about medicine and treating people and all that good stuff, maybe the one important lesson was integrity, and, and therefore it was a win. I guess I've been so actively trying to forget this that it hadn't really occurred to me until just saying it just now and hearing you say it back, that is probably true. Yeah. So, you know, maybe it was all worth it. <laughs> if you hadn't gone through that experience, who knows, you know, where else you might have found yourself in life. Yeah, I'm happy where I am. I I've been able to try to pass some of these lessons on without the details, of course, to my kids. And because of that, I I, I see my son is has grown into a, a, a young man that 
has way more integrity than lots of people that I see. And it makes me very proud. And perhaps you're right. Perhaps this lesson that I've learned, I've been able to pass it on to him. And that's good, I guess. That's great. Was your father able to see you established in your, you know, in this great job with your family uh, before he passed away? Unfortunately, he did not. Sorry. Like I said, when I left medicine for good, I actually worked for my dad, so I saw him all the time. He and I grew very, very close for the last five or so years of his life. I lived half a mile down the road, and we were best friends, and this part never came up. So maybe during that time, I was in the automotive business, but doing other things. And so he wasn't terribly happy with what I was doing, because I really was struggling financially, but... um. He passed away before I was able to make the leap into engineering where I am now. And so that that is that is something that, that I have some heartache over. Not only do I miss him very much, but I, I wish that he'd been around to see me finally, finally, after you know, 40-something <laughs> years, make something of myself that's that's worth anything. Well, I'm sure he knows. Well, I hope he does. So, Thomas, why did you want to tell your secret today? This has been a hard question, and I knew you were going to ask this. Right. <laughs> I didn't have a good answer to it until now, uh, having gone through this interview. It occurs to me, and it's a very selfish reason. And the reason I want to tell this secret is because, as I mentioned, when people call me Doc and I feel like I'm, I'm, I'm taking advantage or I'm being fraudulent by, you know, nodding and 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 accepting that moniker by telling the story now i uh, i feel like maybe i'm coming clean and maybe in my own mind if when my colleagues call me doc i can i can accept it and take it for the flattery it's meant to be without the i don't know without the negativity i guess yeah i hope so And maybe also to show that, you know, maybe you're not born with integrity, but it's something that you can learn. I find this story to be so heartwarming, and I really want to thank you for sharing it with us. Oh, I'm flattered that you say that, Ben. I, I, I truly am. Thank you so much, Thomas. Thank you. Thomas spent a lot of time and money trying to live up to his father's expectations and going to medical school. And even though it didn't happen for him, he learned a valuable life lesson that's paid off for him and his son. It may even pay dividends in ways that he'll never know. If Thomas hadn't learned to be honest in the face of temptation, what other road might he have taken and where might it have led? Thomas sent some pictures for you. There's a selfie with his face obscured. Also, a picture of the logbook he uses to keep his data in by hand at his new job. And a screenshot of a text Thomas sent me a few days after the interview with an update on the classmate who voted against his return to med school. That's interesting. All of these little gems are waiting for you now on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at Secret Room Pod. Thank you for downloading your favorite little indie podcast that could. We deliver a new secret, rain, or shine every two weeks. The podcast team is Susie Lark, Sachelle Brooks, Bobby Joe Valdez, and Alessandro Nigro. Chet is the sound engineer. Submit your secret at our website, secretroompod.com. 
This is The Secret Room, a podcast about stories no one ever tells. I'm Ben Ham. Pod on. Pod on. How many people know your secret today? Probably one person that I'm sure knows, and then maybe my wife knows or not. I'm not really sure, honestly. Hmm, interesting. Um, she knows you're on the podcast. Uh, she does. I'm using her phone. Right, <laughs> but she did, but she doesn't know why. Not really, and in fact, uh, I it, it came up in conversation, but I told her that I really didn't want to talk about it, and she accepted that, and that's why I'm not sure she really knows because when all this happened, I never really talked about it. She knew stuff was happening, but um, she never really asked any questions, and I didn't volunteer any information.